0: love what you hear be sure to check us out on patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes insights and even our D adventure hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast,
1: where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research
0: in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall, and I'm your host, Derek Baker. And today we are jumping into the Legend of Zelda line. We are jumping into a fun game that we're obviously getting this remaster of that's coming out or has come out at this point. And it's a game that I didn't truly dabble in, but this is this is a Derek top 10. This is a hashtag Derek top 10. I am very, very
1: excited about talking about this game today. It's honestly the game that made me fall in love with the Zelda franchise again. It's a little bit controversial in the Zelda community, but I truly believe it's one of the best Zelda games that they've ever made. And it's a great precursor to Breath of the Wild which Nintendo has described really as wanting to make Skyward Sword again, but just doing it better.
0: Mm -hmm. And as Derek said, we are going to be covering Skyward Sword. The first, kind of the first, I would say, in the actually mainline Zelda line that's using the motion controls, you know, that we saw with like the sword and shield and bringing that along with like Mario Galaxy to the Wii
1: it's definitely one where I think fans as soon as the Wii was released sort of expected that this game was going to come out we'd be able to be link and use the sword Mm -hmm. use the shield and do all the motion stuff that we really wanted Twilight Princess got released not too long after the Wii had come out and I liked to imagine that people were a little bit disappointed in that, uh, just yeah. that it wasn't fully formed at that point. But they needed a little bit more development within the Wii system. We're going to talk about that today. And I think Skyward Sword hit its mark, hit its goals, did a great job with the motion. Yeah, I'm excited. Let's talk about it. So first and foremost, just FYI, if you're listening to this episode now, if you've never played Skyward Sword, there are massive spoilers for this game. We are releasing it on the Friday, the same day that Skyward Sword HD is coming out for the Nintendo Switch. If you have not played the game yet, now would be the time to just pause, play the game a little bit, and then come back to this podcast. But if you don't care about spoilers, then please continue to listen. And also, just real quick, I'd like to note, this is the six-year anniversary of Satoru Iwata's death. Um, it just happened over the weekend, so rest in peace to him. was very influential. And a lot of Nintendo products and processes definitely remembered as we talk about Skyward Sword. So, about Skyward Sword, it's the 16th mainline game in The Legend of Zelda and was released worldwide over a week's time, November 2011. It was the first to establish a timeline in The Legend of Zelda series, something that was never attempted before and was established as the beginning of said timeline. Players control Link through a third-person 3D home console format while navigating through maps and dungeons that can be visited repeatedly throughout gameplay, a notable difference in a mainline Zelda game. This was the first in the Zelda franchise to utilize Wii Motion Plus as a feature and was one of the first Wii games to fully explore the capabilities of the Wii Motion Plus technology, an accessory implemented around two and a half years after the release of the Wii
0: console. So for those of you don't know or do, it's that little brick that you added onto the bottom of your remote that came with like the little rubber grip. So it added a bit more intuition and you know, novelty to it that made it a a bit more accurate.
1: Right. The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword sought to utilize as many features as possible through this experimental tech and to make players feel that Link was truly an extension of the player in various combat and puzzle solving
0: settings. And it was, as you had said, you know, typically in a lot of the Zelda games, it's linear to a point, you know, I mean, if, even if we're going back to like the N64, where you can kind of jump to different places, it was still linear and you had a progression you had to hit it, it, kind of its own way. But this really took it to that forefront. And like you said, it's kind of the precursor to Breath of the Wild. So let's jump into the studio that did it. Obviously, we know Nintendo did it, but who in Nintendo worked with this? The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword was developed by Nintendo EAD or Nintendo Entertainment Analysis and Development. It was formerly the largest software development branch within Nintendo and had previously existed with many iterations as an R&D entity for Nintendo and was responsible for many of the company's early flagship IPs, you know, you know, such as like Star Fox, Animal Crossing, a couple others that like they dabbled in a couple of things for it and, and we saw even like Mario 64. You know, we're seeing, we're seeing it very early on Coming up throughout. In addition, it acted as a platform for some of Nintendo's earliest creative leadership, including one of the most recognized game developers in the world, Shigeru Miyamoto. Miyamoto was responsible for many of Nintendo's earliest successes, but most notably Donkey Kong, Super Mario Bros., and the topic today, the Legend O Zelda. Originally, Nintendo EAD was established as various R&D departments as the company sought to enter the video game industry after their long time and long running success as a card gaming company. It was initially named R&D Foe. Number four.
1: Although R&D 4 was ambitious, they lacked the programming ability to make the titles they envisioned, so Miyamoto enlisted the help of R&D 1 member, Gunbei Yokoi, to help with the creation of the ultra-successful platformer, Super Mario Bros. Later, R&D 4 would go on to create The Legend of Zelda and would set off various careers within Nintendo, including those of Shigeru Miyamoto, Hideki Kono, Ketsuya Iguchi, and Kintsuki Tanabe, all of whom would be part of some of the greatest Nintendo games and series of all time, including Donkey Kong, Mario Kart, Kirby, Star Fox, all of Yoshi's spin-offs, Animal Crossing, Luigi's Mansion, ARMS, Splatoon, and Fire Emblem, among many, many others. The department was restructured and renamed in 1989 as Nintendo EAD and was again restructured in 2003 with other R&D branches absorbed into Nintendo EAD. With the unfortunate and untimely death of Satoru Iwata, Nintendo's president at the time, the branch was consolidated in 2015 as a part of Nintendo's mass restructuring, consolidation, and mergers four years after the release of The Legend of Zelda Skyward
0: Sword. When it came to developing Skyward Sword and changes to the gameplay, it began around 2006, soon after the release of The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. The team set out to make Skyward Sword feel like a breath of fresh air in a long line of Zelda games, but struggled with this concept. In the past, Zelda titles had core plot and gameplay elements that were always assumed to be included in the next title. Dungeon puzzles, you know, a no-name hero, and of course, Saving Princess Zelda. While these things mostly remain similar for the Skyward Swords final product, the team decided it would be best to try and reimagine these elements almost from the ground up, opposed to their approach to the games in the past. So be like no name or like no voiced. So it's just kind of like you are Link. Whereas now they're kind of giving, they're trying to figure out what they're doing with it.
1: They were always doing things the same way. Things were a given. So they focused a lot on the gameplay elements. And they wanted to, this time, sort of introduce a new story and make, mm-hmm. really, like, revisit the characters of The Legend of Zelda. Something that they didn't do for a very long time because, like we said, everything was just sort of a given. There's a hero, there's a princess, you save her, there's a bad guy. And Skyward Sword was their real, like, first opportunity to say, hey, maybe there's more to these characters that
0: we're giving them credit for. Absolutely. And one of the biggest features of Skyward Sword came as possibly its biggest challenge, the Wii Motion Plus. Nintendo released the Wii Motion Plus as an attachable accessory to the Wii Remote, which would allow for more complex motions to be interpreted that the Wii Remote originally wasn't capable of. During this stage of development, Nintendo was planning to use the standard Wii Remote and Nunchuck combination, and the gameplay would have been similar to that of Twilight Princess. However, Once Wii Motion Plus was released, Assistant Director Ryuji Fujibayashi would suggest its inclusion to producer Eiji Anoyuma as a way to create a unique gameplay experience. Anoyama loved the idea, but this also meant restarting the game entirely. The team struggled to make the Wii Motion Plus function the way they desired, and it got to the point where it was almost removed from the game entirely. An unlikely savior would come in the form of Wii Sports Resort, which featured a mini game involving swordplay and another involving archery. And this gave the development team a better understanding how swordplay, along with other classic Zelda elements, could benefit from the Wii Motion Plus. So see, Wii Sports, Wii Sports Resort, honestly, pretty much the Dead Rising of Nintendo.
1: <laughs> it was the it's, OG, it's... yeah,
0: the game of games. The game of games, baby. (laughs) So this, along with a little pressure from Ayanuma's peers, are ultimately the reason Skyward Sword was able to implement this unique style of play, with Ayanuma stating, quote, Yes, then we started making a Legend of Zelda game that you could play using the original Wii Remote and Nunchuck. But then I fell under intense pressure from some other producers, who said, Ayanuma-san, why aren't you using Motion Plus? Did you not see We Sports Resort? <laughs> <laughs> that was my own quote, so take that part of it. Yeah. <laughs> so I figured we must do it. I gathered the staff and we puzzled over how we could make it work. As a result, Kobayashi-san and these guys had a hard time.
1: It's so crazy to me that Wii Sports as a title. I I remember that. Coming out and Wii Sports, just the original version being just a huge motivating thing for me to buy a mm-hmm. Wii, and it was so simple. There's five games in the original Wii Sports. To think that that game coming along with the Wii, then getting its own sequel, and finally like influencing a Legend of Zelda title—that's so
0: insane to me. It's it's amazing, as you had said, like with the Wii Sports franchise. I believe it's in the top five or top 10 best-selling franchise game. And it's because it had such an outreach to everyone, from your nursing home to just like you in your living room playing Wii bowling, Wii tennis, Wii boxing, all this other stuff that came within those was so fun. And those, in my personal opinion, I think used the Wii Motes the best and had the most accuracy with them out of most any of the games that came out, and the technology was just there for those. And that's what sold the Wii. If they didn't have the the Wii Sports package, I don't think I think it would have flopped pretty darn hard early.
1: I a hundred percent agree. And for a long time, I think we didn't get a lot of games that utilize that motion, you know, action, like feeling like you're in the game really well until we got to Skyward Sword, and that's why Skyward Sword was one of my favorite titles on the Wii. So, after settling on the Wii Motion Plus as a key component of gameplay, the team quickly found themselves asking all sorts of other questions. Even though Wii Sports Resort had expanded their vision, they recognized that the Mii characters were a little silly looking compared to Link, and this allowed the minigame gameplay to still be fun and free-flowing without taking itself too seriously. But that wasn't something that would necessarily work for a Zelda game and a character that they considered to be cool in Link. The swords in Wii Sports Resort were also in a straight line, so as long as the trajectory was good, the player would make contact. With a sword like Lynx, however, they knew the player would need to swing the sharp edge of the blade at their enemies. They wanted to represent natural human movement as best as possible, and even recognize that at a certain point they had gotten carried away. Producer Ayanuma states, At first we were too serious about faithfully representing human movement. Link still didn't look that cool, so we decided it was necessary to fake some parts. Then Link's movement seemed more natural that way, and we knew swordplay would work out. What's more, we were able to swing the sword in the direction we wanted, and got to where we could think, which direction shall I swing from when fighting an enemy? Swinging the remote to attack would mean freeing up a button on the Wii remote. It was a long-standing tradition that Legend of Zelda co-creator and general manager of Nintendo EAD at the time, Shigeru Miyamoto, would assign a task to team members to add a new action to each Legend of Zelda title. In the past, this resulted in things like the feather item from the Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening allowing the player to jump, or even something as simple as picking up grass in the Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. This time, they decided to replace the former swing button with a dash up ability. At previous titles, Link has been able to dash, but if he ran into an enemy or a wall, he would be injured or stopped in his tracks. The dash up ability allowed the flow of action to continue as the player progressed through various maps and dungeons. and could also be used in fights to leap over the enemy combatant and attack them from behind where they were vulnerable. It also meant Link could scale small cliffs and walls. They gave Link a stamina bar in order to keep the level of dashing somewhat realistic and were most excited about the feature when they saw players using that ability to leap over enemy heads.
0: So, going to Breath of the Wild, we see that stamina bar, or the idea of it come over, especially with, like, you know, cliff, climbing, anything that requires that strength, spinning the weapons, charging it up, so we do see this as an iteration that will continue over. In an effort to continue smoothing the sword play during the development process, the team was called in by Miyamoto late at night, and he simply told the team, quote, have it stop, which only confused them, Uh, have what stop? they quickly realized he meant the sword. He wanted players to have the ability to stop their sword at various positions and, most importantly, wanted to make sure they were including Link's signature charged sword attack. He asked them to allow the player to point their sword to the sky, receive a charge, and shoot out a beam. Not only did this release a powerful attack, but the resulting beam made it easier for them to follow the direction of the sword's swing and the added visibility would allow them to improve their gameplay. It also gave them the idea for a name, Skyward Sword. The localization team at Nintendo of America also informed them that Ward, W A R D, could mean a protector of something. And so Skyward was embraced by them to mean protector of the sky or protected by the sky. The flow of the game would also be an important emphasis in designing the user interface, or UI, and the Wii Motion Plus once again opened up another opportunity. In the past, Zelda games required the player to pause, pick a desired item or skill, and then unpause in order to use it. Additionally, most Wii games at the time used a point-and-click method in order to make selections in their respective games. Fujibayashi wanted to continue revolutionizing with the Wii Motion Plus and asked UI designer Tanaka to create an interface in which the player would not even have to look at the screen to change the items. Originally, their concept involved a circle that would appear with available items and the player would then twist their wrist similar to dials or rotary televisions or pretty much you know turn on the stove. <laughs> they found that because the player could not fully turn the wrist that it was leading to the wrong items being chosen. So they scrapped that idea. You know, you don't want to turn on the oven while you're cooking. I guess you do.
1: You don't want to I wanna... guess they didn't.
0: <laughs> You don't
1: want to overturn the oven while you're cooking. Yeah, you don't
0: want to break the knob off and then burn your house down. This is the perfect analogy that no one can say is wrong. (laughs) Instead, Tanaka made it so that the player could tilt the remote in certain directions to use assigned items. Tilting the Wii remote up while holding a certain button would select the slingshot. To the right would be bombs. Upon seeing the design, Miyamoto commented to Iwata, quote, once you get used to it, You can select items with unprecedented speed and without interrupting the flow of the game. It's quite unique. Fujibayashi jokes that this is the only time Miyamoto has ever praised him. (laughs) So they're in this
1: very intense uh, late night, you know, you get called in environment and he gets the most excited about just being able to flick the risk and pick, you know, like whatever weapon he needs. Oh, absolutely. Nintendo would continue to implement Wii Motion Plus features in Skyward Sword. Instead of aiming at the screen with a bow, a la Link's crossbow training, a game that was included with and designed to showcase the Wii Zapper accessory, the player would actually hold the remote like they would a real-life bow and take aim that way. The orientation of the remote would also change how a player used bombs. If they held the remote upwards and swung, like throwing a baseball, the bomb would be tossed. And if they swung the remote from a downward angle, like bowling, the bomb would instead be rolled. They could even add a spin to the bombs by using the same Wii Remote turning strategy that exists within the
0: Wii Sports bowling minigames. That's pretty cool. That's one thing. Again, I've only dabbled with this. That's a cool implementation. That's so smart to use that. To change up the gameplay, where normally there would be a button combo plus like a down on the stick, up on the stick, or like running, you'd have to do it to like a leaping throw or something like that. This makes it where on the fly, you are linked officially and you can like make those decisions.
1: And it was smart too because it was something that people were already used to doing. By the time that this game came out, everyone had played the Wii Sports franchise, there was Mm -hmm. even the sequel out. So for them to just include those things, everything felt very natural, continued to flow that way.
0: 100%.
1: So let's continue. Let's talk about a Legend of Zelda gameplay staple, which is the items. As the team continued to explore developing new items and gameplay concepts, they made the decision to cut a classic item in the boomerang. The boomerang first appeared as a reward item in The Legend of Zelda on NES but Nintendo felt that while it was a staple of the series, they couldn't find a way to best use Wii Motion Plus, so they instead decided to give Link a beetle that would operate similar to a drone. This apparently caused a rift between the development team and landform designers because having the beetle meant the player could get to places and see things that they weren't supposed to see almost immediately, and their hard work would go unnoticed. They did decide, however, to keep the beetle anyway because it was too useful of an item for the player, and the beetle actually inspired the team to use an ancient civilization setting for many of the backdrops, notably Lineiru Desert. Other items will be borrowed from previous Zelda games, such as the wind bellows from the Minish Cap and the whip, which the team didn't believe was going to work until Iwata used it on stage at E3 2010. At the time, it was a brand new item, but Iwata got it to snap, in the showcase, so they decided they needed to develop it further. It would later go on to be one of the most important items in the game, allowing the player to steal keys and grab items from other platforms quickly. Because of the team's desire to make each item as user-friendly as possible, it took up a large portion of their development time, and as a result, they felt that this was the most dense Zelda game that had ever been made even casually revealing various gameplay elements in interviews with the belief that there was so much content,
0: quote, it didn't matter. I mean, that's, that's pretty ballsy to do just being like we have put the most ever. So even if we like spoil the whip, you know, spoil what's going on with this, there's just so much for you to do and find and explore that we can't even say at all. I mean, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's kind of cool they did that. And this philosophy that, you know, Miyamoto had specifically with the Zelda series made sense. Trying to implement new things, like you said, such as picking up grass, uh, you know, getting rid of the boomerang, which was not only a rift within the company, it was a rift within fans. You know, like, that's a classic. That's been around forever. You know, we could use it to grab items. We could use it to knock stuff out. You know, so why get rid of that? You know, does this beetle replace it? So. It's really interesting to see that they made this take and they just put so much into it and so much development cost just behind what's going to be in Link's hands. They,
1: really with the boomerang, they wanted to make it operate the same way that the Beetle does. But because they were putting so much effort into making sure that all the items made sense and that the controls made sense, they just realized there's not a good way to use this boomerang. They wanted mm-hmm. to actually originally use the boomerang and control it the exact same way that the beetle is, like a drone, but they were like, there's no boomerang in the world that works this way. So sure. it just didn't make sense at that point, and I think that's one of the things that makes this game special. There was so much thought put into these items feeling real.
0: I like that. I like, I like the iteration of that. Like you said, we could have made the boomerang basically be a weird drone, but why not change it and keep it Somewhat true to life with what's going on, and make it a drone, make it an actual drone that you can use. Let's jump over to the gameplay maps. So, when coming up with level design, Nintendo decided to take a different approach from past Zelda titles. Miyamoto had been advocating for a compact Zelda game to Ayanuma for some time, and Ayanuma finally gave in, passing down the request to the designers. In the past, most Zelda games consisted of large open fields that spread to different areas, you know, very much like your Hyrule fields in, you know, going back to *Ocarina of Time again, which is, you know, kind of my wheelhouse. You started there, you go to the farm, you could go to, you know, main Hyrule, you can go to the rivers you can go kind of everywhere with it. So this is trying to condense that idea down. This time, they decided that they wanted to make those fields dense, and wanted to give players reasons to come back to them and discover new things. The first game field they developed was Farron Woods. Unlike previous Forest and Zelda titles, which were often dark, dim, and a little creepy, they opted to make this area bright and vibrant with lots of trees, cliffs, birds, mushrooms, and catchable insects.
1: Catchable insects is like a Nintendo staple in itself. If there's an insect, I feel like Nintendo developers are like, how do I capture this? They're all just a bunch of bug nerds, dude. Listen,
0: hashtag bug nerds over at Nintendo. (laughs) Hashtag Nintendo bug nerds. Look at all of them. You're right. Like even in Paper Mario, even in Animal Crossing, especially, you know, all those things of like, they want to know it. They want (laughs) to catalog them bugs. Uh, the concern was, you know, with catchable bugs, obviously. Was that No concerns there. No concerns there. But the concern was that since this was the first true gameplay area that you're going into, designing it like the older forests would be a turnoff for the player, and possibly make them want to quit the game. Farron Woods is also the first underwater stage, and in spite of previous Zelda titles, they wanted to make sure this was an area where the player could have fun swimming around for hours. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> After visiting the design many times, they flooded Farron Woods to make a massive swimming pool that they were already familiar with. And- so... So you know, as an Ocarina of Time
1: guy, that the Water Temple is the absolute worst. And swimming in video games is generally terrible. Yes, both times the Water Temple, correct. (laughs) Yes, it was the worst. (laughs) So this time they were like, wait a minute, people hate this. So maybe we should try and make it better. And I'll say it
0: was still the worst. I didn't like it. (laughs) It improved. It wasn't so dark and dank anymore. Yeah, it's true. No dark and dank, but you know, I, th- I think I think we're still perfecting water. I think this this newest generation has watered down pat in some games, but Zelda's working on it. They're a lot of there. times,
1: it looks beautiful, but it's so hard to maneuver mm-hmm. in the water environments in video games. So they're trying, they're working on it. I think Breath of the Wild uh, does it a little bit better than Skyward Sword did, but hey, that's how time works. In previous titles, Zelda maps were given unique landmarks which would give the player a point of reference to their location. Think like uh, the the Death Mountain.
0: Yeah, like de- yeah, exactly.
1: In the Ocarina of Time. But because of the density of these new levels, there was some concern that players could become lost and frustrated. To combat this, the team would implement dowsing, which would point the player in the direction they needed to go. They would also implement a beacon so that if a player was only following dowsing and ran into a wall, they could set a beacon nearby to help them maneuver around it. So instead of the lost woods, these would be the quote not lost woods. Very good, very good. Like it, <laughs> like it. These multiple entrances and exits would be reminiscent of the Pikmin series, and the development team would settle on five areas of play. Ultimately, each one necessary to revisit through certain stages of the game. These would be Ferren Woods, Elden Volcano, Lineru Desert, the Sealed Grounds. And Skyloft. So, moving on, Elden Volcano was unsurprisingly inspired by Death Mountain of previous Zelda titles. They felt that making the design a volcano rather than a mountain would offer unique play in the area and wanted to take advantage of the renovated dash ability by creating lots of slopes and focusing on uninterrupted gameplay. Being able to climb up high on these mountains was not a new concept of the series, but it had always required a zigzagging pattern. This also meant that they needed to be particular about the number of slopes so the player could reach the top through a specific path, while now they were able to create more options for platforming. The lava design would also borrow from the water levels of old. Players were required to lower and raise lava levels at various parts of the volcano in order to proceed. There was also an added danger in bubbling lava that could hurt the player should they move too hastily. Multiple effects were experimented with in order to get the desired reaction on Link's response to the lava. They wanted it to be less serious than when it was presented in Twilight Princess, but less comical than it was presented in Wind Waker. This decision was mainly due to the art style and what the team felt would appear appropriate within the setting, and ultimately they decided it was best for Link to appear hot rather than in pain, and made Link jump up with his tunic on fire.
0: So still bringing those kind of silly Link elements to it that aren't overtly serious or him burning down. You know, he is a a hot boy. He's (laughs) he's, he's just appearing hot. He's Link. Link, hashtag hot boy. Hashtag hot boy. Just those thirsty emojis would appear next to him, and that's how you knew he was getting hurt.
1: Hashtag hot Link summer.
0: Hashtag hot Link summer, baby. (laughs) So the Lanayru Desert is the most obvious presence of the beetle item's influence and involves many ancient yet advanced civilization elements along with quicksand traps and robotic enemies. While Farron Woods and Elden Volcano were areas that the team emphasized playing three times, Lanayru Desert was designed to have three unique areas within its map. For example, it would become a necessity for Link to cross the desert within a boat. Fujibayashi states, quote, So far, we've talked about three game fields, forest, volcano, and desert, each one of them having their own theme. In the forest, we tried to change the landforms for many forms of gameplay. For the volcano, rather than making big changes to the landforms, we tried to change gameplay by changing the rules. Then we wondered what to do for the desert. Well, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time was based around the present and future, and The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess was based around light and shadow. we wanted to make gameplay with the kind of contrast for that desert. Eventually, they would implement time-shift stones that Link could strike in order to proceed through a path using the past's advanced technology. This tech would also appear old and broken down before finding the time shift stones, but would appear fully functional afterwards and would help the player progress through the map. While this land is a desert wasteland, its enemies and most interactive elements are based on the availability of electricity, which developers were even reluctant to even call electricity based on the settings of previous Zelda titles. They felt it was weird. It's
1: All these things within the Zelda franchise have very intentional, specific names, and to say, this is electricity in a fantasy world, they just weren't even sure that that was something that made sense. But obviously, it makes a lot of sense, because we all live with electricity, so.
0: Yeah, I think they're trying to feign from, like, is it too realistic using this thing, or do we want, like, fantasy, like, Fantalisticity, you know, <laughs> exactly. like that take on it. Give it a Zelda name, a Hyrule name. Many of these creatures were designed as robots, which Nintendo designer Koji Kitagawa states were based on references from ancient clay figurines and pottery from the Joman period, about 14,000 to 300 BCE in Japanese prehistory. Ruins underneath the land's current state make up many of the puzzle designs, and the player must utilize these time periods to solve them. Additionally, puzzles must be solved using the Wii Motion Plus system in ways that the forest and volcano did not. According to the book Hyrule Historia, the Ocarina of Time and the Time Shift stones share the same color, and it is speculated that they could even be made from the same material. Which, this is one of my favorite parts, I
1: think, about Skyward Sword, is that there are a lot of very similar design elements borrowed from the previous games. We talked about them doing this sort of from the ground up rather than the top-down approach. But because they wanted this to establish the timeline, they were able to sort of use these little pieces from other games and make those things connected, make them make more sense. And so it's a little bit of nostalgia, but it's a little bit of hey, this is why things the way they are in games that we've already made.
0: Even though these areas were replayable in the, th- the three we just talked about, it didn't mean less work. Programmers, sound staff, and the effects team were asked to make two of everything. Many of the developers were aware of the challenges of programming as they had been former programmers themselves. So they knew going into it, it's, it's a pretty big task. It's a pretty big ask task. So now we'll talk about the area where the humans lived
1: Skyloft, and it's meant to be fantastical and is not designed realistically. Smaller islands are connected to Skyloft by narrow bridges, and there are many extreme elevation differences between the connections. Initially, Skyloft was designed similarly to a castle and can be seen labeled in concept art as Hyrule, although this was obviously later changed. As far as the citizens of Skyloft are concerned, all human beings live in the sky and their isolation allows them to worship the goddess and live in peace. Skyloft features a knight academy, which serves as a tutorial center for Link and also a relationship builder for the main characters. Zelda isn't a princess in Skyward Sword, but her father Gepora is the headmaster of the academy and serves a similar role as he would as king. The citizens of Skyloft have many customs associated with the worship of the goddess and hold the statue of the goddess sacred as a result. Unlike the other areas of Skyward Sword, Skyloft does utilize a focal point in the statue of the goddess, which utilizes more straight lines and angling to differentiate itself from the generally watercolor-inspired backgrounds of Skyloft. The sky also features other areas such as Pumpkin Landing, a bar-type environment specializing in the growth
0: of pumpkins. And what would a Nintendo game be without a little pumpkin action? (laughs) You gotta love it. (laughs) Lastly, the Sealed Grounds are the point Link first lands when he arrives from the sky, and it is the location of both the Root of Evil, known only now as the Imprisoned, as well as the Goddess. The developers decided this part of the game needed to be dark to contrast with the sky, as well as make it more mysterious. They decided to make it rich in vegetation and wildlife, with beams of sunlight exposing the area. While the Sealed Grounds don't make appearances in other Zelda titles, it's hard to miss the setting's comparison to other areas where the Master Sword may be discovered in the future. There is a stake that appears in the middle of the ground, and later appears as part of the imprisoned. Carved on the stake in the head of the imprisoned are the crests of Faror, And the other two goddesses they are modeled on crests that appear in earlier games these crests are also associated with the sages and different races and appear in other games as well as skyward sword while five worldly realms existed there was one from beyond the silent realm the silent realm is a spiritual realm that only those who've been chosen by the goddess are allowed to enter Link can only find the Master Sword by completing challenges presented to him by the Silent Realm.
1: And so you see, especially within the Sealed Grounds, just the team's desire to, even though they wanted to do this ground-up thing, just make sure that they were still tying in as many elements as they could. I think describing the game as a dense game makes a lot of sense, because even if they gave away every single item, every single thing there was still going to be things that the team could discover like these little crests, these little Easter eggs, these things that made longtime fans of the series kind of go,
0: Hey, wait a minute. Look, I know that. And I think that helps a lot. Like just doing any tie-ins that are just within the series where, you know, as we said, we're not going to really see the grounds again, but we're seeing the idea of it. We're seeing those tie-ins of the elements that other games have brought in. So it's, It's a smart way to do it for a game that doesn't have a timeline, but is now kind of getting one.
1: So, one of the classic elements of Zelda games is the dungeons, but this time dungeons were an area that they wanted to differentiate as well. Previously, there was a clear divide between the main areas of the game, and once you entered a dungeon, everything became very serious and more intense. Nintendo aimed to make these transitions more fluid, while also making dungeons replayable, but with new elements each time. Many times before, dungeons would grant the player a new item and what Nintendo would refer to as Zelda etiquette would begin, which is basically, here's a new item, can you figure it out and solve this puzzle with it? Now players were using items throughout the various fields and then again
0: when they entered the dungeons. So changing up a bit, because you know, I know in some of the older titles, you may only use an item just for that dungeon based on your gameplay where it's like okay you have to use the bomb shoes to hit those levers that you can't hit otherwise and you may not really use bomb shoes again except for you know a couple of puzzles you might have to hit so this allowed them to be like okay you got to use everything well and i think
1: it was especially important because everything was so motion and control based that if you didn't get a little bit of experience with the items before you entered the dungeons you might really struggle within the dungeon. So I think that this was a good move. Agreed.
0: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
1: And so let's talk a little bit about the enemies and their AI. Enemies, specifically goblins were given more humanity, in the words of the developers, but essentially more of the eye and the AI for Skyward Sword. Instead of getting in the way and using swords and spears, they would alert others, hurl rocks at Link, and even try to stomp Link off of cliffs. Nintendo wanted Bokoblins to be able to attack in more intelligent ways to create a sense of realism, but to also allow the player to get creative in defeating them. Bacoblins are the very first enemy encountered in Skyward Sword, and so you see a little bit of that carryover. I think it's a Breath of the Wild where the enemies are a little bit more organized and they're just a little bit more intelligent,
0: you know, and the alert thing of like alerting other enemies to you to work together to. You know, like let's say in older ones where they may have just had a melee attack. Now they have that range attack of throwing rocks to set you off from getting that bow ready on them. Right,
1: exactly. Because of Link's ability to swing the sword in any direction, Nintendo also wanted to implement as much variation in enemy movement as possible. Emphasis needed to be placed on enemy stances so that the player would have to counter those stances in order to damage their opponents. This placed an additional importance on the player to counter their opponents and to not swing their sword wildly. Nintendo wanted it to feel like you actually had a sword in your hands and your life was on the line, in which case, the player might not be so quick to attack who they're facing unless there was a clear opening. They wanted players to not only pay attention to their opponent's weapons placement, but their distance, because if the player accidentally got too close, they might be attacked first. Nintendo took this mentality to a new extreme in their boss battles, so much so that Miyamoto asked, is it even possible to beat this guy when battling Ghirahim, the main antagonist
0: of the game? During a particular boss battle with Girahim, the player must use dodging and blocking with the shield in order to defeat him. Fujibayashi reminisced on one of Miyamoto's test plays. Quote, one day, when Miyamoto-san was fighting during a test play session, That series of attacks came and he defended with his shield. That is, of course, one correct action, but the strength of the attack hadn't been adjusted yet. So there was a smash and the shield broke. Nyamoto-san was stunned and said, My shield! The development team wanted to ensure that boss battles needed to be carefully calculated with devastating results if their controls weren't used properly. Fortunately for our protagonist, the helpful companion Fi point out the weaknesses of enemies if there is an obvious struggle to defeat them so basically giving you that kind of not cheese mode but like hey let's give you a little hint on what you got to do they recognized i think that this was going
1: to be a very strange out there game for a lot of the longtime zelda fans so there's always a companion in the zelda games for the most part Mm -hmm. having someone there to say hey you might want to look at this while you swing your sword those kind of things they were helpful
0: Especially if you're looking at your audience, you know, you're getting a lot of kids into this or people who may not be familiar with games. So it definitely helps that a lot. Absolutely. As we had talked about kind of the shield breaking, there is weapon destruction before Breath of the Wild. The team implemented a shield bash for Link, which could be utilized by swinging the nunchuck forward to delay the next enemy attack while presenting a new opportunity for countering. But they felt that left unchecked, shield bashing would make Link way too powerful. So, they implemented a shield gauge that, when emptied, would result in the loss of that shield. Both the shield bash, its negative impact upon mistiming, and general weapon and shield damage would later go on to be a main gameplay element in The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, and most likely its successor, Breath of the Wild 2. Among many other elements from Skyward Sword, we're going to be added to that that we're going to talk about a little bit more. And as we're wrapping up with the release, many challenges presented themselves from motion abilities to challenging the typical Legend of Zelda game design. And after five years of development, the game was released worldwide in November of 2011. And
1: five years seems pretty standard for a lot of games, right? Like, it's it's not a crazy amount of development. I mean, we've done podcasts now where these games go on for decades before they actually get made. So five years isn't too bad. But I do know that they were given an extra year just to be able to kind of retune some things and make sure that the gameplay elements that they were implementing really for the first time worked as they intended. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the arts and characters. In charge of special effects was Hariuso Ido, who had previously worked on The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker and The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. And... The Legend of Zelda Spirit Tracks. Ito wanted to do something different than the cell-shaded style of Wind Waker and more realistic style from Twilight Princess and decided to base his visuals on watercolor. Ito states, when you took a good look at it, the backgrounds had an atmosphere rather like watercolor, but the characters moving around there were slightly different so as to stand out. At E3 2010, we exhibited rather featureless art for the background and characters that would fit either style while trying to avoid becoming too realistic. But later, I heard from ionuma san that someone at Nintendo of America said the effects were featureless and lacked something, so I hurled myself into fixing them. To make it look better, I would make something and toss it out, make something and toss it out. It would fit in well, but I was aiming for distinctive visuals and tried a variety of manners of expression. What's more, the sword this time. I experimented many times with ways to make which way you'd swung the sword clearly visible. As a result, I think it turned out to be really satisfying when you swing the sword. So you see just a little bit of the thought process. They wanted the watercolor art to be apparent, and I do think Skyward Sword does a good job of having that bleed through into the gameplay, but not so bad to where you can't really tell what's what. I mean, the designs are clear. And I do think that from a promotional standpoint, the watercolor art, if you've never had a look at it, it's really neat. All the posters, you can see that style really coming through. And it doesn't feel like, Looking at a poster, sometimes this can happen where it's, you're looking at a poster, and it just has a different vibe than the rest of the game. Like this stuff clearly blended together well.
0: Yep, I think they did it expertly with that. And yeah, you're you're right, making it watercolor, but not to apparent like Okami or something like that, where it's very jarring and it's the whole element of the game. This takes it and puts it on the back seat, but it's still a beautiful piece that works together.
1: So, talking about some of the characters, let's start with Link. He's meant to appear at 17 and a half years old. His age and appearance were designed to differentiate his appearance of Twilight Princess and give him a characterization that's only partially matured, with his appearance and reactions seeming more lighthearted, sometimes comical. Interpersonal relationships are more emphasized in Skyward Sword, and his expressions are meant to reflect this change. This Link was intended to be relatable, as the player would be living vicariously through Link to a new extreme link would also appear right-handed for the first time in the series that was a big deal to a lot of people
0: yes and and, an obvious change but not so obvious as most of the world is right-handed so you're going to want to build it up for that and so that was their major reason for that change but also this link's a bad boy He's (laughs) he's changing it up he's changing it up no rules Oh, no rules. And so Link's sky-soaring partner is called a Loftwing. Link's Loftwing is Crimson, the rarest of them all. They share a unique connection and have a bond noted in Skyloft as something that sets them apart from other members of the village. As a result of their bond, Link needed no training to master flying with his Loftwing. Players may note that the Hylian Shield has the mark of a Crimson Bird, and it's hinted that this is what inspired the Crimson Loftwing and Skyward Sword, while inspiring the Hylian S.H.I.E.L.D.'s design throughout the official Legend of Zelda timeline. Loftwing designs were modeled after a bird called a Shoebill, while their tails came from a designer's pet, Sheba. So, two of the coolest animals out there. There's a Shoebill that goes clack, 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 and a machine <laughs> gun was inside. And then also a Sheba. You know, you, you gotta love it. Oh, you can't, yeah. Can't hate a Sheba. They're so can't smart. Hate, can't hate a Sheba. Let's jump over to Zelda. As Derek had said earlier, Zelda is not a princess in Skyward Sword instead lives a life similar to Link at the Knight Academy in Skyloft. She's awoken by the goddess to ensure her destiny, and joined by Impa on the surface world to ensure the safety of the world below. She was designed in a way that was as relatable as possible, so the first thing removed was any ornamentation from her head. Kobayashi wanted her to look like a typical village girl, but also wanted her established as the heroine. They wanted her to appear in reddish tones as opposed to her more well-known blues, but a designer sought a more neutral outfit in white. Her harp and Skyward Sword resembles that of Sheik's in Ocarina of Time, and it's implied to be the same. Fi, Link's companion, and also known
1: as the Sword Spirit, obeys the goddess without question. Eventually, Fi transforms into the Master Sword, and many design components were taken from the Master Sword in her character design. She's light blue, resembling the Master Sword's blade. Fee has a triple fold that follows the motif of the Master Sword's guard. Her purple miniskirt represents the Master Sword's upper grip. Her leggings are patterned the same as the Master Sword's grip. And the jewel on her dress is the same shape as the Master Sword's. And the color of the gem actually changes as the player progresses through the story. The team would finally settle on a Wind Waker inspired design for her in-game appearance. Girahim, the main antagonist, is a demonic being that relentlessly pursues Zelda for one reason. Use her spirit to resurrect his master, the Demon King Demise. Nintendo wanted Girahim to appear around the same age as Link and act as a counterpart to Fee, as he would eventually reveal himself as the evil spirit sword. Originally, his main clothing was white with a consistent diamond pattern throughout, in addition to a cape, until he reached a certain form in which his diamond pattern became more chaotic. At this point, he was designed to appear more muscular, and while he appears menacing, his actions are extremely grounded and calm. His chest has a large diamond that mirrors Link's partner Fee's, and the rest of his body has a cut diamond pattern. Gere is intended to be a parallel
0: to both Link and Fee. Next up, we have Impa, who still exists to protect Zelda. Skyward Sword presents Impa as both young and old, and was referenced from the Impa and Sheik from Ocarina of Time. Kaneko, a designer of Skyward Sword, describes her as, quote, androgynous, like a male role in an opera. She has a pendulum braid that measures time, and her triangular robe represents a sundial. Her age is measured by the braids in her hair. The first encounter the player has with Impa is an aged Impa. The Imprisoned, one of the earliest boss fights within the game, and is a repeating boss fight that increases in difficulty as the game progresses. It's fought on the sacred grounds and must progress up a corkscrew-shaped pattern in order to reach the top, with more activity to stop its progress required from the player each time. The Imprisoned is the root of all evil, and wields enough power to end the world. The Imprisoned was designed as a kaiju, which could be represented as a monster such as Godzilla, or any of the monsters that we're seeing in Pacific Rim. Eventually, the imprisoned becomes Demise, the master of Gerahim and a precursor to Ganondorf. His sword, which exists as Gerahim, appears as a black master sword with sharper edges and a wider blade. He resembles Ganondorf, but instead of red hair, Demise has hair set ablaze to better represent the power, the power, the power of his existence. So definitely a really cool villain to build up again. Bringing those elements of Ganondorf, it's someone we know, we've seen through the series, but giving it this whole different feel, almost an artsy feel to it as well, as appeared to some of the other Ganondorfs that we have. Right. And finally, the citizens of Skyloft were intended to be designed after various birds. For example, Zelda's father, Geapora resembles an owl. And his name is one half of the name of the well-known, overbearing owl from Ocarina of Time, Kepora Gebora, who also appears in Majora's Mask and Four Swords Adventures. Additionally, Skyloft residents Haina, Gross, Owlin, and Horwell strongly resemble bird like features and obviously have bird like names. <laughs> when I was reading those facts,
1: um, I'm going to seem really stupid, but I did not notice this at all. But when I read the facts finally, I was like, oh my, that makes so <laughs> much sense. Hena is a hen, Groose is a goose, Owlin, obviously. I don't know what a Horwell is but i'm sure that there's some kind of bird out there there's probably someone out there that could tell me what that is but yeah it's um it's very interesting that they stuck with that theme and it's so simple it's such a simple design element that obviously could be picked up on very quickly you mm-hmm. know if you're looking for it but it also i think helps them to create these characters and not stress too much about
0: what they're all going to look like. And Nintendo is, is nefarious, well-known, I guess, depending on how much like Nintendo, <laughs> about doing nefarious. this. Look at Pokemon. These are basically <laughs> Pokemon names at this point that represent either the animal or attribute that they have. We see it throughout Mario. We see it throughout Star Fox. I mean we see these other things that appear based on those localization names, especially when you come to English, that really have an excellent wordplay to it. And like you said, kind of that double meaning. That is a name with it, but attributes to this specifically as different types of birds. Pokemon can be different types of things. So it's, it's, it's really cool that they have those elements included into it.
1: Absolutely. Let's talk a little about the marketing. Skyward Sword was first announced at E3 in 2008, so two years after it started development. The only concept art of Link and Fee were able to be shown at that stage in the development process to the dismay of Iwata If you remember from the beginning of the episode, we talked about how they basically restarted this game in the midst of development because they wanted to make it a Wii Motion Plus centric game. Yep. Gameplay was finally revealed in a trailer at E3 in 2010 and depicted shadows of various iconic elements of the 3D console releases from Ocarina of Time all the way up through Twilight Princess before finally revealing the design for Link and Skyward Sword. Gameplay showcased sword fighting, Link's bow, and the beetle picking up bombs and blowing up walls, among other standard game elements. A commercial was aired with Robin Williams and his daughter Zelda Williams, in which Robin, while watching his daughter Zelda play Skyward Sword, says, Well done, Zelda, but you have much to do before you become a master. Robin proceeded to expertly kill enemies with Link's bow using the nunchuck and Wii Remote's newly implemented aiming style. Zelda was named by Robin for the titular princess, who was in turn named for F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife, Zelda Fitzgerald. And if you don't know, F. Scott Fitzgerald was actually the pen responsible
0: for the timeless novel, The Great Gatsby, among many others. So yeah, passing down the names. And I remember the commercial fondly. It was, it was such a cool bonding moment. And obviously Robin Williams, amazing man, amazing character, uh, you know, who... Uh, Loved his daughter very much and, and really pushes this in there. And it's just a, it's a very heartwarming commercial that's Robin Williams all the way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Love Robin Williams. Rest in peace. Very, very cool commercial. And I enjoyed watching it again,
0: just doing research for this episode. It's a good one. Another commercial aired in North America, which featured master swords and Hylian shields falling from the sky in various North American cities. With one of the final swords falling through a young man's ceiling and into his coffee table. A british female voice asks Do you have what it takes to wield the master sword? <laughs> that's that's my interpretation of it. That was a great british female voice. <laughs> thank thank you very Amazing. much. Thank you. Slap me on Siri please. <laughs> <laughs> the day before Skyward Sword launched, there was an event at Nintendo World in New York City in which players were eligible to win a copy of the game and were able to receive a limited edition poster should they buy the game within the event hours and before supplies were out. The event was not only meant for Skyward Sword, but intended as an additional event to celebrate The Legend of Zelda's 25th anniversary, and had features such as a Master Sword replica unveiling, trivia challenges, and a historical showcase. Fans that attended were the first in the world able to purchase and play the finished copy of Skyward Sword. I'm very jealous of those people. The event
1: itself did not seem to be a massive thing like we've talked about in some of the previous episodes, but still cool enough to see like a Master Sword replica, you know, the historical showcase that had a lot of things like just stuff that Nintendo keeps, you know, the original game cartridges from Mm -hmm. the old
0: titles, things like that. So, Well, and, and to be able to, I love that idea of, okay, the game comes out, let's just say tomorrow. But you can purchase it right now at this event, being the first, like the, the, the super fans be able to purchase it. Right.
1: And I think it's one of the things that makes Nintendo unique in that they're able to sort of just keep all that stuff. They've been so game centric, game focused and successful for a long time and develop things in house a lot more than some of the other companies do. And so they're sure. able to have that rich history. So let's get into the story. Skyward Sword takes place at the beginning of all Zelda continuity. An ancient battle occurs where evil forces break through to steal the goddess's power, which is without equal. The goddess gathers the remaining humans and brings them into the sky in order to protect them, then helps those who remain on Earth seal away the evil on the surface, and not long after, the humans in the sky forget those below, and the villagers of Skyloft believe a surface below the clouds is only a myth. Link wakes up late, a common theme within the Zelda series. He's a member of the Night Academy, which trains young members of Skyloft in combat and survival skills. He attends the academy with both Zelda, the Headmaster's daughter, and Gruus, a much larger boy that considers Link a rival, and is actually jealous about his relationship with Zelda. Before Link's final exams, Groose locks away his Crimson Loftwing in an attempt to make him fail, and Link must find and release his Loftwing in order to pass the examinations as well as participate in a ceremony with Zelda. Once he is successful, both Link and Zelda decide they should take a celebratory flight. Unfortunately, a dark tornado appears in which Zelda is swept away while Link manages to recover. Once awakened, he's questioned by Zelda's father over what has occurred, and this leads him to suspect that there might be more to Link and Zelda. He's given his official Knight Academy graduate's attire, which is his tunic, and led to the goddess's monument in Skyloft, in which he attempts to draw a sword that has been trapped within the monument. He is successful, and Fee, the spirit of the sword, emerges to tell Link the significance of his success. Together, they open a path to the surface world, and Link dives down to rescue his lifelong friend,
0: Zelda. Link falls to the surface unharmed, and learns Fee can help him along his path to Zelda. He meets an old woman, who tells him he can find her by traveling through various parts of the surface world. Link travels through the rough terrain of these areas, and finally finds Zelda, but is stopped by Impa, who tells Link he's too late, and that Zelda would be dead if not for her interference. Zelda turns to see Link before exiting through a portal, reminded of her task at hand. After searching more, Link encounters Zelda again at the Temple of Time in Leneiru Desert, but must hold off Gerahem, a skilled mercenary after Zelda, until she is able to escape with Impa, who closes their portal behind her. Link continues to search for Zelda, but in the meantime has to hold off the imprisoned, the monster sealed away by the goddess many years ago, and after doing so, looks to strengthen the goddess's sword that was pulled from the temple in Skyloft by finding the Sacred Flame. Once Link has succeeded with some unsuspecting help
1: from Gruus, he's able to reach Zelda, who offers her power to fully upgrade the goddess sword into the Master Sword. Link learns that she is the mortal reincarnation of the goddess Hylia, was unable to fully defeat Demise, the final form of the imprisoned. After Zelda had blessed the goddess sword, she returns to a platform in which she intends to rest and conserve her power while attempting to hold off Demise. As she locks herself away, she says her goodbyes to Link. And she says, quote, while it's true that I'm Hylia reborn, I am still my father's daughter and your friend. I am still your Zelda. When Demise is finally gone, there'll be no more need for the seal that binds him, and then I'll be able to wake up. So, I'm going to ask you a favor, Sleepyhead. I'd always be the one to wake you up when you slept in, but this time, when all of this is over, will you come wake me up? Link is able to defeat Demise after gathering the Triforce, but Giraham kidnaps Zelda and attempts to use her power to resurrect Demise in the past. Link fights through an army in the Sealed Grounds, defeats Giraham, who finally reveals himself as the spirit of Demise's sword. Gruus, who's been trapped on the surface world this entire time, defends Zelda while Link fights Demise. After Demise's defeat, he vows that his reincarnation will haunt humanity forever in an attempt to seal him away permanently. Fee accepts eternal slumber within the Master Sword. The elderly woman at the temple appears one last time before she dies and vanishes, revealing that she was Impa. The game ends with the surface now freely accessible to the residents of Skyloft while Zelda decides to remain on the surface to watch over the Triforce, and she and Link establish the Kingdom of Hyrule.
0: So a very interesting story going in. You know, it's, it's, it's a very Zelda story. You know, Zelda gets kidnapped, things happen, you must defeat these things, but there's so much intertwining within that, within the idea of those the Time Stones, within the idea of so many other Zelda games coming together to make this prequel you know, to make this kind of first game in the origin story, the origin story. Exactly. So that's one of the things that I really
1: loved about this game. I'm so glad that they decided to finally make the origin story happen for the Legend of Zelda. Mm -hmm. And I think they did a masterful job of it. I think that every single element was so intentionally designed to reflect past games and in a lot of ways, I think it's just a nice thing to do for the fans of the series that they didn't have to do because people are going to play mm-hmm. those
0: games anyway. But yeah, but it, it establishes just so much. And I think it really helps they did this and built this game out this way. That way you can have more of a story or more of an idea of a story come out that's not just surrounded in that one game. You know, it's not just like these random Link adventures of different Link. At different times, it's, it's starting this whole cycle of it, which I think was, was an expert decision. Other expert decisions, some may agree, some may not agree, is the gameplay. Gameplay was heavily based on Wii Motion Plus functionality, as we have stated. Both common enemies and boss battles are dependent on both the orientation of the Wii Mote, in addition to the swing attempted by the player. Should the player not swing their sword in the appropriate direction, not only will they not cause damage to their opponent it could open up an opportunity for a counter from their enemy. Players must utilize many items, as is the case with typical Zelda format. However, these items and strategies are also heavily focused on Wii Motion Plus functionality and include bombs that can be tossed and rolled, as we had said, bows and slingshots to enemies from distance, the old Indiana Jones whip, like steal items and uh, give a little watash, a little katoo, a little kapow, <laughs> as some might say. And the beetle that can be used to solve puzzles that require distance not achievable by the player themselves, among a couple other items. Players are able to use potions while moving for the first time as to not impede the flow of the gameplay. You remember we talked about earlier, everyone saying it needs to continue on. We don't want pause menus. We don't want stop and play. We want rate of play. You're also able to catch bugs in forest environments, even going as far as to require the player to take different approaches to these catches depending on the insects. Even the angle of the swing. A silent realm was introduced as a result of the new dash button. Link is unarmed and collects items known as sacred tears while avoiding enemies. Should Link encounter these enemies, the only option is to run, run away. Fee guides the player throughout, similar to other companions from Zelda series. Hey, listen. Link can use potions, hearts, and seats throughout the game to rest and heal. Boss fights occur both by Link independently and as a pair with his Loftwing. And gameplay is intended to represent as realistic a functionality of the weapons and items as the Wii Remote and Nunchuck will allow. So basically maximizing what the Wii can do with the Wii Motion Bar, the Motion Plus, the Nunchuck, and all those elements combined into one tasty morsel of a game.
1: So generally, we would talk about DLC for a game. Nintendo doesn't really do DLC, although, I mean, they have done a little bit, but uh, at this time, it, it wasn't as prevalent for them. So no DLC was released for this game. However, Hero Mode is a feature available in Skyward Sword that presents itself once you beat the game on its regular difficulty. Enemies deal two times damage and will not drop hearts upon defeat, forcing Link to rely on potions and healing seats. Hearts cannot be found in plants or pots unless you hold a heart medal. Bugs and treasures will, however, carry over. And certain dialogues are different in the beginning of the game. Should the player save after defeating the final boss and then load, the game will continue right before the final battle. Once the Master Sword has been obtained in Hero Mode, there is no charge time for the Skyward Strike, so when you stuck the Wii Remote up in the air, you didn't have to wait for the charge, it was instant. Cutscenes became skippable, and the Sheikah Stone would
0: unlock all hints since the player had already cleared all the puzzles before. Not smart. I mean, it's it's allowing like the puzzles, which is kind of like the escape room. The first time you do it, awesome, amazing. It's fun to figure it out, but it's like if you had to do it again, just give me the cheat sheet so I can get through this and do like the combat. And and that that seems what like hero mode was more for was combat oriented, playing with the motion plus controls, and really testing your skill with it. Yeah.
1: And the hero mode, very similar if you've played Breath of the Wild to the master mode. And many of the other Zelda games in the past have this Mm -hmm. option. And it's just meant
0: to be a little bit less forgiving. And I think it works really well. And I believe, I'm I'm probably 100% wrong, but I believe the first time we really see that was the GameCube re-release of Ocarina of Time when we did get that like master super hardcore mode. That was on that like bonus disc you could get. There is that in the
1: in the original the NES one. If you put your name in as I, I don't know if it's Link or Zelda, you can automatically start on a harder difficulty, and it's it's that's, the same concept. Right. So yep. it's been one hundred percent wrong. Getting yeah, yep, one
0: hundred percent wrong. But you know
1: what? <laughs> I was also right.
0: <laughs> there was also some cut
1: material. There was a normal originally Wii remote button configuration, as we stated a rotary dial system uh, user interface. There was the boomerang, and there was actually a rocket fist meant to replace the boomerang, and that's what eventually became the beetle. You can actually see as Link launches the beetle, he sticks his arm out, and that is a leftover animation from the rocket fist that they mm, had developed. Maps were conceptually extremely reactionary, uh you could shoot arrows into an empty desert that would result in a lush greenery. Trees would grow quickly and it was made to appear that time was changing before Link's eyes. This was a precursor to the time shift stones utilized in solving puzzles. Multiple residents of Skyloft including a dancing trash can man who's trying to stop littering. There was a construction worker and a former knight who's an uncle of someone at the dormitory, a vagabond who sometimes sells things on the street. There was a boy who just loves rabbits that they decided to get rid of. I don't know. Wouldn't Hmm. it hurt? Yeah. Rabbit-loving boy.
0: Ah, keep him in there.
1: There was a new pop icon that acts nice but is actually bad and a guide that occupies the town. I need me the trash man.
0: <laughs> that's what I need in my life now. The
1: trash man, yeah, recycling is bad. I mean, if they recycle in Skylaw, you just kick it off the edge, I guess, but that's true. It would have been really funny if you had just gone down to the surface and landed in like a pile of trash. It's like this is all the stuff you guys have been throwing down here for
0: It'd be years pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I I think this one is in there, but I'm not 100% sure. There's a doll resembling Tingle. That can be seen at a shop in Skyward Sword, so it's sort of speculated it was Tingle, maybe one of the original guys that live within Skyloft. And then there was also, in addition to the pumpkin bar, a milk bar, but it was removed since the main animal featured were cows and birds, and it didn't seem appropriate in the sky. Many occupants and employees were also excluded as a result, including fans of the character called Kina, who was the face of Pumpkin Landing.
0: Hmm. So, yes, yeah, so, I mean, some stuff that seems more of a, like, time constraint, but also an art constraint of, like, okay, we just need this many people here because so we kind of want him to explore around and not necessarily, like, did they add to the story? I think that's a lot of those questions for it. Exactly. Because
1: even the pumpkin landing place, uh, I 100% completed this game. And you go there, and there's a few missions that you do. But it's not something that feels very
0: rewarding. So so let's move on. Let's, let's, we're still in the game. What was in there within the music and sound design? The game's sound team consisted of 10 people, five handling general sound design, and five handling music composition. Hajime Wakai acted as the game's sound director and lead composer, with the other composers being Shihio Fuji, Mojito Yokoto, and Takahashi Hama. Longtime series composer Koji Kondo only composing one track for the game, which was the music playing during the story of demise and the goddess. Only a little bit in there. Fuji was responsible for the music focused on environments, dungeons, boss battles. Among her work was the music for Skyloft. She used art and environmental assets so that her compositions would fit with their environment, so pretty smart to be able to combine that together. The music was performed using a live orchestra instead of utilizing MIDI or synthesizers. Many members of the team were unsure that the music would actually be done this way, but an orchestra was selected at the insistence of Miyamoto. Using an orchestra enabled the team to give more life to cinematics, environments, and allow for more impactful emotional moments within the story but also allowed for less freedom within the tracks as an orchestra is not easily manipulated as a meteor synth. The game's main theme would hold a familiar element due to the fact that it was borrowing from Zelda's lullaby. The positive reception of the orchestral score within the company led to the creation of the legend of Zelda 25th anniversary symphony concert, a celebratory concert featuring orchestrated versions of classic Zelda themes. At one point during
1: gameplay, Link receives a harp and is not only able to play four unique songs of his own, but can actually play along with the backing track. Koji Kondo states, Something we've done in Skyward Sword with the instrument, which I think is different from what we've done in other games, is that the harp instrument is something that's capable of playing a melody, but it's also kind of capable of playing sort of a harmony or playing along with the song as well. You can really play it at any point in the game. As you strum back and forth, you'll play music that will work with whatever background music happens to be playing at the time. So actually, Link can, while he's running through the world, have the harp out, and he could be playing. We're continually trying to look at new ways to apply both instruments and music to the Zelda series. Love that idea. It's really cool. So there were a few different release versions. One will be coming out on the day of the release of this podcast. There was the Wii Standard Edition, the Wii Limited Deluxe Edition that included a gold Wii Remote Plus with the Hylian Shield symbol over the Wii Remote speaker. Both editions came with an anniversary CD containing eight orchestral versions of various tracks from the series, including Kakariko Village, Twilight Princess theme, the Wind Waker symphonic movement, Gerudo Valley, Great Fairy's Fountain theme, Twilight Princess Symphonic Movement, Ballad of the Goddess from Skyward Sword, The Legend of Zelda main theme medley, and The Legend of Zelda 25th Anniversary medley. All tracks were composed by Koji Kondo, the original sound designer for the series. There was a version released on the Wii U Virtual Console as part of Legend of Zelda's 30th anniversary celebration. And then, of course, Skyward Sword HD, a high-definition remaster for the Nintendo Switch which includes an upgrade to 60 frames per second from the original 30, in addition to the shortening of various dialogue and tutorial elements. Legend of Zelda-themed Joy-Cons were also released to pair with Skyward
0: Sword HD and are inspired by the Master Sword and the Hylian Shield. And I believe the only really, really controversy is we get in the Amiibo realm of needing the Amiibos for some certain elements of the game Which we will see, I guess, upon full release. Yeah,
1: so there's going to be one Amiibo released for Skyward Sword. And it is Zelda and her uh, Loftwing. Zelda and her Loftwing. And it sold out very, very quickly due to bots. Um, That stuff has started to become very problematic for Nintendo, along with a lot of other gaming companies. I think mm-hmm. it's supposed to have some sort of element in the game that isn't necessary. It's not the same as in Breath of the Wild where certain costume designs, certain weapons weren't even available if you didn't have the amiibo. I think that sure. this one is just going to be an easier way to call your Loftwing to you, which was done through a whistle in the original game. So it's not a Got huge it. deal. Got it,
0: okay. In my Yeah, opinion. that doesn't seem... yeah Same as my opinion. It's not an element where it's like, oh, you don't even get a Loftwing, period, unless you get the Loftwing Amiibo. You know, you get Garbo. Man, he comes back in this game, and you ride his trash chute.
1: Like in uh, Breath of the Wild, if you had the uh, Link Amiibo for the Super Smash Brothers series, that was the only way to get Epona the horse in the game.
0: Mm, So if you
1: didn't have that, you couldn't get that. If you didn't have the Skyward Sword Amiibo, you couldn't get that costume. I don't think there's anything like that going on in the Skyward Sword HD version which is good
0: and yeah and i think for them this is more of that middle ground waiting for the still not titled or still not revealed title of breath of the wild 2 right. this is more of the middle ground game that's better i think than that mario anniversary that came out that literally changed nothing hopefully this has <laughs> a bit more to it so we'll see yeah. but let's wrap this up let's talk about the reception and legacy of skyward sword Skyward Sword received critical acclaim from multiple journalistic magazines and websites upon release. It received a score of 93 out of 100 on Metacritic, and also ranked as the 6th best-reviewed Wii game of all time. GameSpot was notably less positive than other critics, praising the storyline, dungeons, enemies, and visuals while faulting the controls for being unreliable and feeling that most of the experience felt both unnecessary and overly familiar. While critical reception of the game was very positive overall, Fan and retrospective opinions were far more mixed due to its highly traditional and linear structure. Skyward Sword would later serve as a jumping off point for Nintendo's Breath of the Wild, with many gameplay elements remaining, notably the stamina, climbing, weapon damage, but without requiring motion controls. So we kind of see the death of motion controls after the Wii within the Zelda universe, and we see Breath of the Wild being, you know, as we talked about, kind of the best of all the both worlds of all the worlds of zelda kind of taking every element that needed to be and even just throwing mario odyssey in there i think this is the age that mario and zelda needed to hit and we're we're seeing it this game for me um
1: yeah i i think that it took the right amount of elements i mean there are certain critical points and and we could talk about that in a minute but i think These reviews are fair. It was very highly praised at the time of its release. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that most of the reviewers' criticisms are fair. And I'm glad that this game served as such an experimental thing for the Zelda series that they were able to to really branch out, still make a good game, and then carry over the things that worked into the newer titles and get rid of the stuff that didn't.
0: It was very much a Wind Waker, but serious game Wind Waker. Right. In terms of like experimenting, trying out new stuff, but also pulling from Wind Waker itself. So, but yeah, that's our coverage of The Legend of Zelda, Skyward Sword. And as always, Derek, why did we choose it? What do you think of it? Well, with the release of the HD version coming out, it
1: seemed appropriate to revisit this game. It came out in 2011. Now it's been 10 years. We can really look at things through a light that we couldn't before if it had been closer to the release. We've seen other games in the Zelda franchise come out. We had Breath of the Wild, of course. Link's Awakening came out as a remaster. Mm-hmm. So to see the Skyward Sword series come out and you know be an HD element on the Switch, it, it felt appropriate to talk about it. I'll be honest, this is the game and I might have said this at the beginning, this is the game that really made me fall in love with Zelda series again. I Mm -hmm. would give this game a 9 out of 10. I don't think it's perfect, but it's really close, and it's one of my favorite games of all time. This was the first Zelda game that I ever beat like 100%. I beat the very first story mode. I went back. I played the hero mode. I beat that 100%. I loved this game so much from the story elements to the gameplay itself, the visuals. I had a great time. Now I'm a little bit of a sucker for an origin story. So when they decided that they were going to finally establish a timeline within the Zelda series, I was probably more excited than I think other people would be. And I think there are valid criticisms of this game, like I said. I think there's some repetitiveness that exists within some of the boss battles. The Imprisoned, mm-hmm. for instance, the monster that comes out of the sealed grounds and walks up the slope over and over again. Basically, each time you fight that boss, you start by like having to pop his like toenails, basically, like you attack his toenails. And then as sure. time goes on, there's like more toenails, or there's less of an opportunity to hit those things. And doing that over and over and over again was something that didn't really translate well. I think within the theme of the story, it's I, I think they were intending mm-hmm. for that to be like a hey, it's getting harder to hold this monster back. But really, it just kind of felt like, man, I got to do this boss battle again. Are you serious?
0: At what point? Yeah, are we there done? wasn't there wasn't enough adaptation to it. It was just kind of like the same thing over and over again, a little more difficult, or a little more to do, which I I would, I will fault Nintendo. They do that sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, for a main boss, like that you fight at the beginning and then you fight throughout. It's kind of tough.
1: I think that the controls though, were very intuitive. It was easy Mm -hmm. to figure out the ways to attack enemies, um, relatively quickly, which I think could be hard when you're used to hitting buttons on a controller. And yep. now you're actually making motions and things. So like I said, I, I really do love this game. I personally am not going to buy it on the Nintendo Switch. I, I own the Limited Deluxe on Wii still. Um, and if I want to replay it, I'll just play it that way. I don't think the 30 frames per second is enough for me to want to pick that game up again at full price. Mm-hmm. Maybe somewhere later down the line. But for right now, I'm going to stick with my Wii version. Um, I hope that it works out really well with the Joy-Cons the same way that it worked out with the uh, Wii Remote and Nunchuck combination. I think the motion controls are really great on the Switch, and they're not as utilized, but will still play relatively well. I just hope that people are able to experience this game the way that they want to experience it, the way that I experienced it on the Wii 10 years ago.
0: All right. You know what? I'll allow it. I'll allow that rating. Because you gave a good uh, it was a good good rebuttal to a nine out of ten and nine out of 10 is pretty good. It's no IGN seven out of ten, so <laughs> so yeah, so as a button stan, I never really played a lot of the mainline Nintendo games in the Wii, as I had stated, I had never played this, never played Twilight Princess. I know Twilight was, was on GameCube and Wii, right? It was, it was like an interim it game. It was a bridge one. Yeah, I still never played either of those, never played any of the Mario stuff. It just wasn't for me i like to just when i play games i just want to sit back and relax or be a little competitive and i just i couldn't get behind it unfortunately now playing galaxy on the the anniversary edition i have played that a bit so i do enjoy it i think it's a cool concept i thought it was fun enjoyed that i will probably be someone who picks this up on the switch because that is my gameplay style granted there's gonna be a lot of people like we have discussed that are be like this isn't true i have to use my amiibo for it it doesn't do the same thing and that may be true but for me who has limited amount of times to play stuff who just wants to pick it up and play especially on the go this to me is going to be a fun on the go title to jump in and out of cannot wait for the for it to come out let us know what you're thinking of it um, but if i have to rate it i would rate it um indiana jones and the crystal skull uh it's basically what it is in my eyes with a whip uh, everything else neglected just whip time um, add in Beetle, who's also the name of a shopkeep later down the line. So fun facts. Uh, that that's, that's that's an addition to the hashtag fun facts. You have to add that. Take it down a power. So now you like you, like you power stuff up like the power two negative power two <laughs> because they didn't include that trash recycling guy who sounds like a swell fellow. Yeah, well intentioned guy. Well intentioned. So honestly, Nintendo. Not so well-intentioned on your part. I see that. I see that. Uh, it's unfortunate. Um, but we do bring that back up a little bit. Let's add in the fact that it's Ganondorf, but with fire hair. Everyone's more badass on fire. Look at Ghost Rider. I mean, it's Nicolas Cage, and then he gets even more badass. I mean, <laughs> it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty cool. And I would put all of that out of probably the, the amount of drip that everyone had in this game definitely rivals the rest of the Zelda franchise. Ooh. So they could really, really get some stuff rolling. So out of all that, also out of Meatball, definitely knocking something over on my floor. <laughs> so if you heard that, Meatball wanted to get a word in. If you don't know, it's my cat. Uh, he loves Zelda, apparently. Yes. So
1: very exciting. out of 10. I like it. It's good review. Oh, thank you. Research for this episode was done by Derek Baker, Alex Kendall, with assistance from Evan Barr, and music for the intro and outro was
0: composed and recorded by Evan Barr. Yeah, so again, this was a really fun episode to do. It was fun to work with you guys on this stuff. Derek took the reins on this one, so it was kind of like our, our first kind of run through those, which is really, really fun. And let's get over to the people who are helping us out and helping bring this podcast to all of you, and that is our helpful patrons. So our patrons, awesome. That's where we have our bonus shows, a post-show which we just re- recording after this to talk about, you know, Things are going, how recording went, and, and and what other little behind-the-scenes stuff we have, as well as a private discord channel, plenty of other things. Check it out over at patreon.com/slash finish the fight. Let's thank those people today. We have Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Trace, Alex Harper, Nick Hyman, Tuna 0317, Richard Scanlon, Mick Chief, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, William Crow, Cameron Collier and Mr. Two. So thank you all so much for your support and uh, stay beautiful. If you haven't yet, give us
1: a follow on Instagram. We're also on Twitter. And please, please join our Discord. We're having a lot of fun. We're always chatting it up. Alex and I love hearing feedback. It's something that we're able to respond to very quickly. And we
0: just overall like have a good time. And... As always, or not so always, depending on how our weeks are going, you can catch me over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's sourman seven zero. Derek will be on there soon. As well, check out our merch shop. The link is in the description below. We're working with some really cool artists to create some new content for you guys.
1: And on that note, my Twitch name, uh, you can find me at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247 if you would like. If you haven't yet, you can find us on uh, Google Podcasts. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. Please leave us a review. We love hearing from you guys. The the feedback helps us out immensely. And again,
0: that was our coverage of The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. Let us know if you've played it, if you're planning on playing it, and what your opinion on the Wii having the boppiest tunes is. (laughs) So with that, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight a gaming podcast.